In Governor Carney's State of the State Address, he highlighted the increased urgency of providing funding to high-need schools and students with programs such as the Opportunity Funding Initiative. For many House Democrats, however, prioritizing funding for education is nothing new. Over the last several years, lawmakers have proposed legislation aimed at addressing issues such as lack of mental health resources in schools, inadequate special education funding, and teacher retention. This week, we'll hear from a few of the lawmakers who are leading the charge on education equity and fighting to ensure each student gets the education they deserve. We'll hear from Representatives Valerie Longhurst, Namdi Chikocha, Kim Williams, and Ray Moore on some of the work that they are doing in this General Assembly to ensure that students get the resources they need. We'll also hear from Annie Sleese, who is a Director of Advocacy and Education at Delaware's National Alliance on Mental Illness. She shares her perspective on these legislative efforts and talks about the kind of impact these bills are having on students throughout Delaware. From the Delaware House Democratic Caucus, this is Whip Count. We'll hear first from Representative Namdi Chikocha, who represents Delaware's 1st District. Representative Chikocha, you are the Vice Chair of the House Education Committee. You've been involved in several education-related initiatives when you were a city councilman in Wilmington. What was it that first got you passionate about education-related issues? Can you tell us a little bit about your background? I mean, I've always been very important. My, my father was actually a, a local civil rights advocate, educational advocate. And I mean, so it was, you know, that was the daily conversation in our home around our dinner table, just speaking about condition of our schools and why it was important and what education does for individuals, families, communities, for, for our nation. And it, it has always been very important to me after a stint in the military, a couple of years in the classroom working within the school. And it just became very important to me that, that that's truly a core issue for the growth and development of, you know, of the communities. And as a community-based social worker, realizing that our students need so many supports, not only in the community, but inside of the classrooms as well in order to reach their goals and objectives and, and truly for our nation to be all that is intended to be you know, by, by our, our, our founding documents and what it means for everyone just to have that opportunity. Education is truly that opportunity that, that, makes, that, that makes it real in, in terms of the African-American community and, and our, our history and our, our low point of Nadir with the period of enslavement when we weren't allowed to be educated and, and couldn't read and, and, and write. It was illegal and coming through Jim Crow and, and all of the systematic just discriminations against African-Americans. So it's always made education a very fundamental issue for me. And, and it, it's tied to so many other things and, you know, your, your, your health and, and the safety in your community, everything to me is tied to education. So that's why it was and will always be a core issue for me. You've mentioned you kind of have a tie to your father, and, and uh, this is part of kind of a civil rights movement. And I know that there was a lawsuit settled recently, uh, the NAACP brought against Delaware, because there was inequities in education, and particularly for, for students in low-income areas. That ball has kind of been shifted now into the legislators' court. And I know as part of the Education Committee, you've sponsored a few bills that are trying to address this. There's a K-3 through special education bill. Um, I know there's also some bills aimed at teacher retention. Do you want to talk about what the legislator is doing now to kind of remedy that lawsuit? I mean, the, the lawsuit really brought brought about because of, again, the longstanding inequities within our schools. And 
the where, where we are as a legislator and is trying to, to work with our, our state department and, and the governor's office, the administration to meet the needs of that lawsuit. I mean, again, this is a settlement agreement. So if we can't come to terms, then it will end up going to court and there could be a very lengthy and costly court battle, which no one's wants. I mean, we really want to put these dollars and resources into our classrooms where, where they should be for, for, for our students. We all know that our children are, are truly our, our greatest natural resource and how we as a, as a community and show that is through cultivating them. And the way we do that is called education. We cultivate our children through their education. And we show that that's important to us through the investments we make in the education system. So I believe that the, the lawsuit is, is just one way in which we begin to address some of the needs and challenges that we know our, our current education system faces. I understand that before you were a state representative, you were a social worker. So you spent a lot of time out in the community and a lot of time serving kids and families, especially kids that had just maybe witnessed traumatic events or were in vulnerable situations. Representative Longhurst has recently filed legislation that would give schools more funding for mental health resources, specifically for kids in elementary schools. I'm curious what you think about this bill, and I want to get your take on why it's important to have these mental health professionals in schools for kids from a young age. I mean, absolutely, 100% in support of that, that bill. And as a community and school-based social worker, realize that the, the importance of having individuals inside of our schools to support children with their mental health and addressing the, the issues and challenges that, that they face outside of school that will allow them to function and, and meet their academic and, and social potential inside of the school is paramount. It's, it's so important. So we can never have enough just caring bodies and, and, and understanding people inside of our schools to support our, our children. So definitely in support mm -hmm. trauma and, and its impact are, are so real every day. You know, there, there's a, a corner in, in my city on the corner of 7th and, and Jefferson Street. And it was a horrible scene of, of a few different shootings, but a, a young man was, was murdered. And right there, we, we created a community garden and we planted a tree and we put a fence up and family members of that individual started writing um, just messages to that individual on the fence. And all of a sudden, you know, it, it became almost a little monument to, to him. And it was a way, and all we did was clean up a vacant lot and built the fence and planted trees. But now children get on, stand there every morning, getting on the bus at 7th and Jefferson, and they see that fence every day. And it's a constant reminder that, you know, of the trauma and the hurt in my community. And then I get on this school bus and I'm supposed to not be infected, impacted by what I've just seen every day in this, this daily reminder. So that's just an example of, of how important it is to have caring individuals inside of our schools to, to support our children so that they can truly just be children and allow to grow and flourish as, as education intends. You just talked a little bit about some of the struggles that students in Wilmington are having. I know that Wilmington is the district that you represent, and prior to being a state representative, you were a city councilman there, so you're obviously familiar with a lot of these issues going on. I know there's some plans in the works right now to kind of figure out the education system in Wilmington, and right now they're currently split between several different schools, so there's some talk about maybe redistricting. I know they're planning a new high school there. There's also some talk about a funding formula revamp or, or revise. 
What do you think about these plans and, and how involved are you in these? I mean, absolutely. I mean, as part of the legislation that Senator Lockman and I sponsored last session uh, to create the Reading Consortium, which is the, the latest iteration or our body commission to come together to look at the, the, the needs of Wilmington students in particular, the our redistricting efforts. So I, I am the, the co-chair of the our redistricting uh, subcommittee. So really looking forward to that work continuing, but it's definitely a need within our city. I mean, not only is, is Wilmington the largest city, but it's also, as you mentioned, divided amongst four districts. And also when Newcastle County Vote Tech, we have a number of independent charter schools in, operating inside of the city as well. So our children are served by so many different governing bodies and, and there's no very little cohesion or even engagement, collaboration between them. So it's just so difficult to have a, a, a meaningful education system within our city. It's We're wasting so many resources, there's so many divisions within our city. And then the, the gra gravest harm to me is that the, the city itself, our, our local government has no role and authority in the education and the educational outcomes of its children. And they bear the, the greatest brunt and it, that the fact that they have no voice in it is just, to me, just a great tragedy, something that I'm looking forward to remedying through our work. And actually next, uh, next Friday, we're actually releasing our, our first preliminary recommendations from the Reading Consortium. So lo looking forward to that. So we've been talking about a lot of the different proposals that are being going around to remedy the situation with education and equity in our state. A lot of these proposals are coming from committee meetings or taking place in legislative hall or in other various places throughout the state. But I'm wondering, as someone that has actually spent time in communities and has spent time in classrooms, what do you see as the biggest barrier to children closing the achievement gap and getting a quality education? Mm, the biggest barrier to me is just consistency on part of the adults who are a part of the education system. And that's everyone from the governor on down to the teacher in the classroom. I mean, we all play a part just being consistent, ensuring that our students have the resources and the supports that they, they need to reach their, their academic and social potential. And, and that's having experienced teachers inside of the classroom, teachers who, who understand the communities or our students are, are from a, a diverse leadership, accountable leadership within the classroom, ensuring that of accountability for, for student growth, that, that understands student needs, that truly takes into account that what it, the, the, the funding that is necessary. We have a very old and outdated antiquated unit count system in, in, in Delaware, one of the few states who still utilize that model and trying to, to plug it in with other sources of, of funding when we really need to, to look at an overhaul, a true overhaul for our funding system that, that will allow us to adequately meet the needs of, of our students, low-income students, students in, in high poverty areas, and, and students of ELL students who, who are English language learners who have their, their own unique challenges, students not only in, in urban areas, but also in rural parts of our state have just as, as much issues and, and challenges within their schools as well. So it's really a system-wide approach to change in our education model, our funding models, as, as well as our implementation 
of instruction inside of our school buildings, the administration from our, our superintendents on, on down. It, it really takes everyone being involved in, in lastly and not least, but truly having our, our, our parents and communities or our nonprofits and faith-based organizations involved in this process as well, all supporting our, our, our children. And truly that's the way that we push our nation forward. Do you have any closing thoughts? Proud of, of the work that the General Assembly and as well as the administration is taking to you know meet the the terms of the the lawsuit, and I believe that you know if if once we continue to push forward, I, I think it's a step in the right direction. Of course, there is always more that can be done, but I believe it, it is a, a step in the right direction, and and the additional funding will allow us to to truly begin to meet the needs of of, of students who've been neglected and had their needs neglected for a long time. And it will only benefit us as, as a state, as a, as a nation, and, and truly add to our, our contribution to the world because these students have, have so much potential. And I, I say that in, in every part of me, realizing the challenges that some students face just to get to school every day. And if, if we can do more to support them so that they have to just continue growth and, and, and development and, and the tools necessary to support their growth and development. I think that that, that will behoove everyone. Representative Valerie Longhurst is joining us now to discuss a piece of legislation that she's filed, which would give schools more mental health resources, particularly for young students in grades K through five. Representative Longhurst, do you want to kick us off by talking a little bit about your legislation and giving some background on it? HB 100 was introduced last year, but due to the pandemic, we were unable to do a lot of pieces of legislation, HB 100 being one of them. So I reintroduced the bill and it will be filed today. And this act established a mental health service unit for Delaware elementary schools. And the unit is at a ratio of 250 full-time equivalent students, grades K through five for full-time school counselors, social workers, and licensed clinical social workers. Additionally, a unit ratio of 700 full-time equivalent students for grades K through five for employment of full-time school psychologists. So basically what this bill does is that we have, currently we have about two school districts that, that don't even have any school counselors in them. And this will establish putting more school counselors into our schools and our elementary schools. I'm curious what made you realize that there was a need for counselors in our elementary schools. What kind of things were you hearing from your constituents or just seeing out in the community that made you realize that there was a need for this? Where this started is that I look at where are we today and what are we seeing today? Untreated mental illness leads to negative outcomes in our community, such as increased risk of dropout for students, homelessness, substance abuse, chronic illness, incarceration, and suicide. And we could do better. We can't keep putting Band-Aids on it. So this legislation puts it to the elementary schools so that we can identify early the children that, ha that have the um, mental illness that need the treatment. And it's just staggering to me how many children at young ages are contemplating suicide now, which leads you to believe that there is an underlying issue that we need to fix. One in five students suffer from mental disorders. We can do better and we need to do better. This year in particular, it seems like there's been a real focus on getting targeted funding to students that need it. 
students in high-needs areas, students in low-income schools. There's been a lot of different proposals. We have the opportunity funding, some other measures that are being proposed that is said to close the achievement gap for students. Do you see your bill as also part of the solution to closing the achievement gap? Well, it would definitely um, close the achievement gap because you can't expect a child to go to school when they've seen somebody getting killed. They've seen their mom try to commit suicide. They see their parents losing their jobs, especially during the pandemic. But one thing I want to make clear about mental illness, this isn't zip code related. It's up and down the state in every community that we have. Yes, we do have a lot more in our city, inner cities, but we also have them all around the state. And that's why we need to put in an online school school districts and in all elementary schools so that we can start treating some of these children before it becomes later on down the road that we're having to put more money into, you know, incarceration, substance abuse, homelessness. Um, to me, this is a, a start for a solution to a, pro- a bigger problem. You know, when you look at um, mental illness and you look at in the schools, we could go to the schools every day and we stop in and we see children, we see them learning, we see them doing book reports, we see them reading in classroom, doing mathematics on the board and all these wonderful things, but it's what we're not seeing. And what we need to look at and really take a hard look is what we're not seeing in the classroom. And that's what this bill does. It takes what we're not seeing and brings it to the forefront so that we can solve some of these problems. I'm now talking with Annie Slees. Annie, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and about your work at NAMI? So I am Director of Advocacy and Education at NAMI Delaware. And NAMI stands for National Alliance on Mental Illness. Great. And before we start digging into the, the weeds and this, this bill that's going to support mental health resources for young students, what got you into the mental health field? What made you want to become an advocate for this type of issue? So thank you for that question. Actually, my background is in teaching. So I was a classroom teacher for about 25 years, and I mostly taught middle school English and directed musicals. So who knew I would end up here? Um, The reason I actually got into this work is personal. My older son experienced the onset of a mental health problem at about age 18. And at the time, I was raising two boys and teaching full-time and Despite my background as an educator, I'd never been trained in how to recognize warning signs of mental illness. And despite my son graduating from high school, he'd never received that training either. So between the two of us, we didn't have a lot of information. We didn't have a lot of support because we didn't tell anyone what was going on. So his condition worsened rapidly. He experienced um, suicidal thoughts. He um, at one point accessed a firearm. To, to end his life. Thankfully, he did not do that. Um, he uh, experienced substance use problems, eventually homelessness, and then also incarceration. So my son spent almost three years behind bars as a direct result of unmet needs um, of a mental illness. So now I want to dig into Representative Longhurst's bill, which was introduced in the last session, and it's being introduced again, unfortunately, put on hold due to covid Did you have a a direct influence in helping that bill come to be? What made you realize there was a need for this? So I was grateful to be a part of that conversation pretty early on. And my um, whole focus was certainly bringing the data around and and showing 
just the realities about how common mental illnesses are and how early they begin. One piece of data that I wish I had known when I was a teacher and certainly when I was a parent is this really easy fact to remember, which is half of all mental illnesses begin by age 14. So when you think about that, shouldn't every educator know that? And shouldn't every parent know that? And shouldn't we all be looking for ways to intervene early? Because we know that in early intervention, we can prevent catastrophic uh, outcomes. To get back to your question, I was involved in that conversation around the the, the goals of the bill and providing some of that data. So we've talked a little bit about the statistics, but can you kind of bring it on home? Why is it important to intervene early? You kind of touched on this earlier with the story about your son, but why should we be catching this in elementary school rather than when it manifests later in life? When we don't know what we're looking for, we might not see those early signs. We might not recognize when there's distress in a young person that is not super um, obvious you know, going back to my own personal story, my son's, my son's teachers who were great and his school experience was great, he flew right under the radar. No one ever brought up a concern with his mental health. So there are lots of kids just like that. And through elementary school, we know that those um, issues are beginning, but they look different. So if you're waiting till high school, you're likely already dealing with the exacerbated symptoms. And we know that we can prevent um, those catastrophic outcomes. We know that um, young people are more likely to drop out of high school if they are experiencing mental health conditions that with unmet needs. We know that their likelihood of experiencing substance use problems um, it, it elevates. Their likelihood to be incarcerated even elevates, or at least to be interacting with criminal justice system. And the risk of suicide is elevated when mental health needs are not met. So. We absolutely can be getting ahead of that when we have the right people in place, when we're not overburdening our teachers and expecting them to know things that they weren't trained to know. You know, I shared that I didn't know, and it's because I didn't have that training because I wasn't a mental health provider. I was an English teacher, and I could do that. So we can't expect our teachers to do it all. We have to have the people in place who have that training, and we also have to have an open conversation with school communities, and that includes parents. That includes educators, leaders, it includes community members, because we're all in this together, and the earlier we can intervene, the better off our kids will be. COVID has really disrupted the education system. It's really, I mean, it's had an effect on all of us, but especially for children that are in elementary school. So as this bill gets worked its way through and it's implemented, what's going to be important for counselors to look out for when we do return from COVID? What kind of concerns are they going to have to face? Well, I, I think our counselors definitely are seeing it already. I think they're seeing it in the virtual hybrid models that they're, um, that they're interacting with their students now. But you're absolutely right. When, when we do return to schools, we're going to be um, looking for signs of unwellness that are far surpassing what we've known about before. We need to, um, quite frankly, we need to remember that we've all experienced a collective trauma. This COVID experience has been long lasting and it's been impacting all sorts of aspects of our young people's lives and, and all of ours too. So I, I think our, our professionals know what to do. They need the time and the space to do it, um, but it's gonna be an uphill battle for a while. And I'm really glad this bill's coming along at just the right time. Right, definitely. 
And I know that, uh, I don't know if you heard Governor Carney's State of the State address, but one of the big key parts of it was this opportunity funding and providing more funding to targeted areas. And he talked about this achievement gap. Do you think that adding more counselors and adding more mental health resources is part of closing the achievement gap? Sure. I think anytime you build in more support pieces to the education system, you're going to be bridging that gap. I think anytime you're providing supports and putting things in place that allow young people to get more attention and more focus, you're going to be seeing progress and you're going to be seeing improvements. I think that's a natural um, assumption and a safe one to make. And then I know that you said as a teacher, you know, we can't be expected to look out for these things they're not trained to look out for and parents too. But what are some small, some things that are obvious that maybe teachers can say, oh, I, I don't know how to handle this, but I think that a counselor would, or, or a parent could say, I need to reach out and get help. What are some small things that they can look out for to intervene early? Well, I would definitely say anytime a young person is withdrawing um, and whether that is um, in their adolescence, you know, as a teenager and they're withdrawing from things that they typically enjoy. Um, they're spending more time alone. It's okay that they're spending more time with friends because that might be what they want to do. And now with COVID, they're probably doing that virtually, but that's fine too. But if they're withdrawing from everything, that's definitely a sign. And for younger children, you might see things like unexplained body aches. And oftentimes younger children will go to the nurse and they'll say that they don't feel well, their stomach hurts, they have a headache. And the nurse repeatedly says, I don't see anything going on. And the parents have had the child checked out. You might want to be thinking about other aspects of the body of the of the body. And that would be, a, you know, their their mental health. Um, some other some other things to think about on unexplained crying or um, a really irritable um, reactions to things or overreactions that just don't seem like the like their typical personality and really just any shift in, in radical shift in a personality would be something you'd want to check out. But I think having that open communication with your students and I'm, I having been a teacher for so long, I've worked with so many amazing teachers, their ability and their knack for knowing their students is always amazing. And I'm sure that if they have a hunch and they have a spidey sense, you know, that something's going on, I would recommend that parents really listen. And same goes for teachers if parents have that hunch, because that's another thing that I learned after the fact, after learning, after leaving education that hadn't really been the case before. If parents see things at home that teachers aren't seeing, it used to be or old school would be, oh, well, I, I don't really see that in the classroom. I'm sorry. And then you really don't have a place to go with that conversation. But I would recommend that educators absolutely look into things, even if they're not seeing them, because there really might be something going on that the young person has has been able to hold together during the school day, and then they just sort of fall apart at home. So I would recommend both on the home front and in school to just keep an eye on our young people, notice anything that seems out of sorts, and communicate with that network of adults who care about the young people. I think that's really great advice for a lot of parents out there that maybe don't know what to do. I wanted to close this off by asking you, if a parent is seeing these signs and a parent feels like there might be a crisis or, or something, where can they reach out to to get support for that child? Well, we do have crisis services in Delaware. Delaware Guidance is the, um, 
the contracted agency that provides that crisis service. But you can also text a number that's national that can connect you to local services. And I always like to tell people this number because it's so easy to remember. It's 741741. And that's the National Crisis Text Line. So if you cannot find the number for Delaware Guidance and you um, are, you know, really panicked about how to proceed, you can always, 24-7, you can always text that number. Explain in your text that you are supporting a young person, whether it be your child or your student or whomever, and they will help connect you to a Delaware responder who can help. And I just want to specify, because I read this in an article that you contributed to, and I thought it was a really good point. A crisis doesn't always have to be this big, earth-shattering thing. Do you want to expand on that a little bit more? Because I think that's really important for people to know. It doesn't have to be someone got killed in front of my child. A crisis can mean a lot of things. Yes, and, and, and one, I th one thing I think is really important, and again, I wish I had known it um, when I was raising my children, a crisis is defined by the family. So if you as a parent or you as the family uh, adult in the home is feeling overwhelmed and feeling like there is something wrong that you can't resolve and a young person is in distress, that is a crisis. Mm -hmm. So it's really, um, I think that word crisis kind of rings bells for people and imagine this, you know, like emergency responder with sirens and all. It's really not that. I like to think of it as, Think about a time when if you have mental health provider services already, and maybe you have a scheduled appointment, but it's not until a week later, and maybe it's after hours and you can't even call them right now. If you don't want to wait, then you can call uh, your crisis services. That, that would be an opportunity to do that. Yeah. I also want to share that NAMI Delaware, while we don't provide crisis response, we do provide information and support and education programs that can help a family and that can help schools too prepare for crises. We actually have a class coming up um, starting February 4th that is all about parent, parents and caregivers supporting a young person who might be experiencing behavioral health challenges. They don't have to have a diagnosis, but that education program includes preparing for a crisis should one happen. Definitely something that you want to get before it's too late. Is there anything else that I haven't mentioned yet that you really wanted to hit on? I'm just really grateful to our legislators. I'm really grateful not only that we in our small state can reach out to them and say, hey, we have concerns and they respond so well, but that they've really embraced this messaging around early intervention. It seems like an easy go-to to think we have to help our older kids. And I'm not saying that we don't. We absolutely should. But when we think about the long game and we think about helping our young people earlier, that is such a wise move. And I am so grateful to our legislators for doing that. And I, I just want to make myself available to continue to support them. Representative Kim Williams, who is also the chair of the Education Committee, is going to briefly describe for us a bill that she's working on right now that would increase special education funding for students in grades kindergarten through third. So in the 148th General Assembly, uh, Senator Poehler and myself introduced um, House Bill 30. And then in the 149th, we introduced House Substitute 1 for House Bill 12. And then again, last year, uh, we introduced House Bill uh, 48. The state and the courts came up with 
settlement agreement for educational resources for the state of Delaware. One of the items that was in the settlement was funding, the state funding K through three basic special education. So there's three categories of uh, special education weighted funding. It's basic, intensive, and complex. Intensive and complex is funded from pre-K to 12th grade, but the basic special education is only funded for fourth through 12th grade. So this bill will fund K through three. So you mentioned those three areas, but what kind of specific services would this bill fund for kids that need special education services? So currently, the law requires that if a child is identified with needing special education services, they need to provide those services. So the school districts are providing the services, but without the actual funding from the state. So this funding will help pay for extra teachers in the classrooms, smaller class sizes. Um, so it'll, it'll actually provide resources that these schools are already, you know, they're already providing the services, but now they'll actually have uh, the funding there to pay for all these resources. You mentioned that this bill has been introduced a few times before, but I know the most recent version of the bill is in response to a lawsuit that's aiming to, to settle the issues found there. Is this bill the same one that's been introduced before, or have there been some changes? Uh, it has cha- it has changed a little bit, but it's still rolling out. So in the 2020-21 school year, currently we fund uh, basic special education. It just falls under the regular uh, unit count, so it would be 16.2. That's what it currently is funded at. And then in the 2021-2022, it will go down to a ratio of uh, instead of 16.2, to one, it'll go down to 12.2.1. And then in the 2022-23, it goes from 12.2, now down to 10.2 to one. And then in the final year where it will be fully funded in the 2023-2024 school year, it is now gonna be funded at 8.4 to one. And that's what's currently funded for fourth through 12th grade. Last but definitely not least, we're going to hear from Representative Ray Moore, who, in addition to being a legislator, is also an educator and a parent herself. So she has a lot of different perspectives she can bring to our conversation about education priorities today. Representative Moore, I wanted to get right into it by talking about the opportunity funding that we've seen proposed recently. It's, it's been in place for a few years now, but as an educator, how are you seeing that opportunity funding play out in the class? Is it benefiting students? As a, in my experience for the last couple of years, in my teaching experience, I've taught at one of the, the neediest schools and the neediest population, the most vulnerable students, and them not having the resources that they need in order to succeed, and it's not their fault. Um, so I'm glad to know that the state is doing, is holding up to that responsibility and ensuring that we are now putting money where it needs to go to ensure that these students, as I quote, myself can dream without limitations on their potential. Talk now about something that's very imperative for students' success, especially this year, and that is access to broadband. Governor Carney highlighted in his State of the State address the need for more access to broadband across our state, especially in the rural areas. And this is not just an infrastructure thing. We've seen over the past year, students need access to broadband to complete their schooling, to get an education. 
As an educator, how do you see increased access to broadband fitting in with all these other education initiatives? I agree. So being totally virtual, one of the things we didn't discuss is access. You, They needed computers. And on top of needing computers, they needed internet. And if a, fi- a family is already financially strapped, how are they going to afford this new increased bill? And if they had lost their job due to COVID, how are they now going to pay for it? Because they didn't, no one asked for this, you know, and no one was prepared for this to happen. Um, I know a lot of the telecommunication issues now, this is now on the radar of, wow, this is something else that needs fixing and how unaccessible it really is to the most vulnerable populations or the most rural populations as well. Um, I do know that for a lot of areas in um, Delaware, the municipality actually has a lot of control over, you know, um, the telecommunication policies it's passed. Like, I know for a fact in Wilmington, I was helping out, um, before I ran for office, I was helping out uh, State Representative Bolden and her um, internet access and come to find out, they were like, oh, well, we don't have, we can't increase it. And I'm like, well, why? Because your area doesn't allow it. And that's when it clicked, like how political things can get to the fact that it's political control over how much internet access you can get to get faster internet. So these are things, like I said, COVID definitely exposed a lot. And it exposed that we have more work to do when it comes to broadband and telecommunication services here in Delaware. So this year, we have definitely seen an increased support for education initiatives, especially education funding. There's a lot of bills out there right now, but I'll name a few of them. We have the opportunity funding expansion, teacher retention bills. We have Representative Longhurst's mental health resources and elementary school bill. We have a lot of good ideas floating out there, but as an educator, what support do you find best in your classroom? What do you think that students and teachers need to really succeed? It's meeting them where they are and then building them up. And really, a lot of some policies have crippled the autonomy a teacher can have because we're in the classroom. And even though Standard says a student needs to know X, Y, and Z, a student needs to know um, C, D, and F, but the students just still on A, how am I supposed to get them there? And the curriculum says, you know, this, that, and the third, but I don't have the power that I can't, if I'm crippled, I can't help get them there because I'm being held to teach this certain standard. So I think we need to give teachers a little more discretion on how to get the students to succeed. We are the professionals. We are the experts. And time and time again, we have, and this is why, you know, I fully pledged and was like, okay, I'm going to run. It's because we need more experts on education that has been through it and going through it and is on the front lines of it to be in these conversations about um, what's happening to the students. I think we also should make sure that we might want to think about how we fund things as well. I know principals are school districts and principal school leaders, they pretty much have to create imaginary budget based on a number they don't know 
if they're going to get. So maybe we need to change exactly how we're um, funding schools before the beginning of their school year so they can see exactly how much they're really working with so that they are continuing to strive to meet the needs of not only their teachers, but their students as well. So we've talked about your role as a legislator and your role as an educator, but now I want to talk about your perspective as a parent. Another proposal we've seen floating out there is funding for early childhood education centers. What is your take on this? I am one of the ones that barely qualified for assistance. Well, I didn't qualify. I was on the cusp. Um, didn't qualify for assistance to put my son in um, preschool, but I also couldn't afford to put him in preschool out of my pocket. So he didn't, he didn't go to preschool. He's going straight to kindergarten. So I had him in daycare. Um, so that is common throughout the state. A lot of parents experience that. Like I want to put my son in preschool if I'm able to afford it, but why should it come down to affordability? Every child should have access to education. It should not be political size and it should not be about economics. That is the one fundamental, out of all the fundamental rights we have, that is the one that we need to prioritize the most. Because if a child is intervened at an early age, it is proven that it pays off on the back end. So we keep putting services on like money and funding into the back end of everything. But if we start transitioning and putting services and resources and funding to the front end of the services, it will pay off in the back end. You know, so we need to at age of two. I mean, I'm I'm from birth, honestly, because their minds are like sponges. I I am an educator and I do know what is um, going to be expected of him when he walks in kindergarten. So I'm able to at least work with my child care provider and say, all right, Jackson needs to write his name. Jackson's writing his name now. He needs to be able to account to 100. But not every parent can afford that. Not every parent, you know, they we try to make ends meet. So I'm all for universal pre-K. I'm all for making sure that we are getting children in our school system early and starting to prepare them as early as we can because it pays off in the end. So everybody starts off the same. If some students naturally going to require more, we're going to give them that. We are able to identify our vulnerable learners early on instead of later. And, you know, where they really start to fall in cracks and be like, oh, my God, I can't save them. Because I believe everybody could be saved. You just got to have a political world to do it. Whip Count is brought to you by the Delaware House Democratic Caucus. Follow us on Facebook at DE House Dems, on Twitter at DE House Dems, and on Instagram at DE House Dems. Make sure to subscribe because we'll be coming out with new episodes shortly.